Our third session is on the sacraments, and we've, uh, just to put it all in perspective, we, this is our third class. The first class was on the creeds, in which we talk about who God is. We, we talked about the, the essential points in the creed. God is Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three persons who together are one God. We also talked about God's omnipotence and a lot of the doctrine of the creed, God is almighty, um, God is Father, God creator, comes out of Genesis 1, and we're doing a Bible study on Genesis uh, in, in the overview of the Old Testament. We ought to spend some time in Genesis 1 reflecting on the doctrine of God. That's a backdrop for what the creeds have to say. But God is Trinity, and Jesus is God and man. He has two natures a divine nature and a human nature, united in his one person. They're, they're united in such a way that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That tells us who God is. And the second session last week, we talked about the commandments. And the essential thing we get from the commandments is to teach us who we are. And... The, the essential, the primary point of the moral commandments is to show us that we are sinners who need to be saved. And we talked about the commandments, the deadly sins, the virtues, but when we see the commandments in the fullness as God intends them to be understood, we learn that we're sinners who need to be saved. So that's what leads us to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance, realizing our state, and through the gift of the Holy Spirit, we experience redemption, and then the moral commandments become the goal. We attempt, we, we, we grow by grace and our ability to do that which God commands. And that's what the Christian life is about. And we talked about the, the language of virtue, the deadly sins and the virtues that correspond to them, and the enterprise of the Christian life, the life of prayer, which we exhort people to live day by day, is growing in grace and virtue in the likeness of God. I like the Psalm 79. When I wake up after thy likeness, I shall be satisfied. That's the hope of the psalmist. And that's our ultimate hope, that in the resurrection, we will be transformed in the, in the perfect image of God. But in the Christian life, the life of prayer, sacramental grace at the altar, we are being transformed in the image of God by that continual repentance and confession and by continual pursuit of, of, of virtue and holiness. Today we talk about the sacraments, and the sacraments fit in the logic of this. We start who God is, who we are, and the sacraments are <clears throat> the most objective means of grace by which God changes us from who we are into what we need to be. A sacrament is by sort of common inheritance in the church an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. As a bishop friend of mine once said, in the sacrament, there's what you see and what you get. And we'll talk about how that works itself out in, in the definition of the seven in a minute. Grace is that divine energy, strength, or gift we need to rise above the limitations of a fallen nature and do the will of God. 
We're saved by grace. We believe we cannot rise above the limitations of fallen human nature by ourselves. The definition of a sacrament is rooted in the biblical teaching about creation. The glory of God is reflected in the world that God has made. Romans says, ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible nature, namely his power and deity, has been seen in the things he's made. The invisible God, whom you can't see, is understood in or reflected in the creation he has made. The sacraments affirm the, uh, so the creation is an outward visible sign of the glory of the creator. The sacraments affirm the teaching that the physical creation is good. Though the creation has been corrupted by the fall, sacraments affirm that the creation participates in redemption. God uses physical things to communicate grace to us. This is in contrast to religions that maintain that all physical things are bad. There's, there are religions, teachings that hold that physicality is the problem, and the way you're saved is to escape from the physical world. We don't believe that. For example, the Eastern religions, uh, Hinduism, for example, religion to teach reincarnation. The whole idea of reincarnation is you keep coming back in a body because you're not saved yet. When you finally escape the cycle of reincarnation, you become pure spirit. That's not Christian doctrine. The fullness of redemption in the Christian understanding is in the body. We believe in the resurrection of the body. And eternal life is in the body. We do not hope to live eternally as disembodied spirits, floating on clouds, playing harps. Don't ever buy into that understanding of the Christian hope because it's not very compelling and you won't want to do that. None of us want to go, I, I don't want to do that. Um, we'll be, it will be embodied existence in a new creation in which this creation is brought to its intended end. In the New Testament, the Creator Himself became a part of the creation. John's Gospel says, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And thus, Jesus Christ himself is the archetype of all sacraments. Jesus Christ is, is the, the definitive outward invisible sign of the invisible God. In Christ we see grace is communicated to us in physical form from the God whom, who is otherwise invisible. We refer to this phenomenon, God becoming man, as the incarnation. Incarnation means enfleshed. We read chili con carne, that word carne, incarnation, enfleshed. Sacraments are extensions of the incarnation into the present. Jesus Christ, God become man, is the means of grace. The sacraments, are, which are manifestations of his incarnate presence, are the most objective means we have of access to him. We can understand the nature of sacraments by reflecting on the distinction between objective and subjective. Something that is subjective depends upon what we think or feel. 
what, what's the best restaurant in Orange County? Well, we could throw them out and have arguments, and it'll be subjective. You think this. What's the best wine? What's the best vacation spot? What's, these are all matters for debate. Something that is objective does not depend upon feelings or, or, or opinions. And sacraments are objective in that way. We receive grace from God in the sacraments because God pledges grace in the sacraments to us. It does not depend upon what we think or feel. Sacramental grace often will produce subjective feelings in us, and that may be a more frequent occurrence the more we come to understand the nature of sacramental grace. We live in an age that puts great stress on subjective feelings. This is why many people who are accustomed to cultural forms of worship, which focus on subjective emotional responses, don't understand sacramental worship, which focuses on the objective presence of God. The essential Eucharistic point is that the presence of Jesus in the sacrament does not depend upon whether we feel that he's present or experience a sense of excitement. It does not depend upon the charisma of the minister. It's an objective fact. And that's why the liturgy is that objective presentation. It's a given. It is. In this light, we can understand sacraments as gifts from Jesus to the church that enable us to avoid the roller coaster of up and down religion based on emotions. When we come to Jesus in the sacraments, in whatever state of strength or weakness we find ourselves, whether we feel good or bad at the moment, we receive Jesus. We know we receive him because in the outward invisible sign, God pledges inward and spiritual grace to us. In sort of courtroom terms, we have evidence of it. And talk more about that afterwards. It's a, a very important point to understand sacramental worship. Objectivity versus subjectivity. The church in history has generally come to, to recognize seven sacraments. In each sacrament, there's an outward sign or form and an inward grace, sometimes called the matter. The seven sacraments, baptism, confirmation, holy communion, confession, unction, marriage, and ordination. In each of these, there's an outward sign or form and inward grace received. In baptism, the outward sign or form, that which we can see, is water. The inward grace is the death unto sin and the new birth unto righteousness, dying and rising with Christ, participating in the cross, through the gift of the Spirit. And I give Bible verses where you can check on that dynamic in the, in the notes. Confirmation. We see this in Acts where the apostles laid hands upon those already baptized. We see it also mentioned in Hebrews. In confirmation, the bishop lays hands upon the baptized and prays that they will receive the strengthening gifts of the Holy Spirit. One of the discussions in theology is the distinction between the grace of baptism and the grace of confirmation. 
It's not an easily resolvable thing, but confirmation is rightly understood as the completion of baptism rather than as a completely separate and distinct thing. Holy Communion, the outward sign or form, we see bread and wine. The inward grace is the body and blood of Jesus Christ, which is spiritual food for the new life that is planted within us in baptism. The prayer book says that that body and blood of Jesus nourishes our soul, nourishes that life within us in the same way that regular food and drink nourishes our natural bodies. Confession. The outward sign or form in confession is the actual form of confession that one uses and the form of absolution that is given by the priest. This is based on John 20, 23, where on Easter night Jesus said to the apostles, Whoso sins you retain, they are retained, and whoso sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And the grace of confession is forgiveness. We don't in the Anglican tradition believe that confession the people must make a sacramental confession to a priest. But we believe that such a confession is a means of grace. So we usually encourage it on the level of most people experience a greater sense of God's grace, of forgiveness, the more objective the act of of repentance is. We can confess sins to a pillow, but the pillow doesn't necessarily hold us as accountable. When we confess sins to another person who has been given authority by God to hear the confession and pronounce absolution, there's a reality, a sin actually stated and confessed, a forgiveness given, promised by by, uh, uh, someone appointed by God so to do. We can talk more about that also afterwards. Um, But my experience in ministry is that that, uh, people who are in the habit of making, we talk about making confessions every year during Lent or whenever you need to, as you fall into grievous sin, you ought to make a confession. Don't wait till next Lent if you, if you but, but the discipline of it is profound because forgiveness is, is, um, is real. And one of the plain things about confession, we're always afraid about confession. Well, somebody will find something out about me we, we, they don't know. Probably not. <laughs> you know, we're probably more known than we think we're known. And sometimes we think that our sins are so unique and different than everyone else's sins. They're not. They're really the same. And, and what we do need to know is that God forgives us and experience that. So confessions and me do that. We'll talk a little more about that afterwards also. Unction is uh, a sacrament based on um, Jesus' healing of people in the Gospels, also specifically on James 5.13 where James says, if anyone's sick, they should call the elders, read presbyters or priests of the church. They will anoint the sick with oil in the name of the Lord, and he will be uh, healed. And it says if he's committed any sins, they'll be forgiven. That's it. And we have unction, essentially, one Sunday a month in church. We ask people to come up. We pray for forgiveness. We lay hands on or anoint. That's the outward sign. The inward grace is healing. We believe that God does heal. He doesn't always heal, but we do believe that every time one receives unction, some grace is received of physical or spiritual healing. And so we, we and that's one way people often have their first encounter with the, with the power of God is through prayer or something happens. We believe marriage is a sacrament. The ministers in 
marriage are the man and the woman who exchange vows. The ring is a sign of that vow. The outward sign is the ring. The inward grace given is the strength to keep wedding vows. The reason one gets married in church is that the blessing of God may be placed upon the vows exchanged. What, 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 what the church says is bless the marriage. People marry each other. The church doesn't marry them. They marry each other. What the church does is, is because of the context and the preparation, it says that this marriage entered into is a good thing. The blessing of God rests upon it, and we pray for the grace to keep the vows. There's some commonality in um, confirmation in marriage and also in ordination. Uh, I mentioned ordination, and I'll speak of the commonality. In ordination, um, this, is, this is where one is ordained a deacon, a priest, or a bishop by a bishop. The bishop lays hands on the person being ordained. That's the outward sign. The inward grace is the strength that the person needs to carry out his ministry. In confirmation, in marriage, and in ordination, we make promises. In confirmation, we promise to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In marriage, we promise to love another until death us do part. In ordination, we promise, we take various vows upon ourselves which are quite weighty. In all cases, they're um, extremely foolish vows to take because they're so hard and we can't keep them but for the grace of God. That's why they're sacraments, because God's grace enables us to fulfill these promises which we cannot fulfill by our own strength. Ask anyone who's married, right? Okay, so there's the sacraments. Talk more about those afterwards also. Because of the sacraments, we need not struggle with whether we have received the gift of the Spirit. We know that Jesus has pledged the saving and strengthening gifts of the Spirit to us in the objective signs of water and baptism in the bishop's hands and confirmation. We need not ask, where is Jesus? He said, this is my body, this is my blood. We need not wonder whether we are forgiven. Jesus has given us a sacramental means to receive forgiveness with certainty. This objectivity of grace is present in all the sacraments. And again, we say the sacraments are the, the, the gift of Christ to the church that enables us to avoid a completely subjective religion. Okay. Objections to the sacraments, which need to be addressed. Some people say, I don't need sacraments. I receive grace directly from God. I heard this, I hear this a lot, uh, heard this a lot. I went to an evangelical seminary, took a lot, got a master's degree there. That was a great objection. We don't need these intermediaries between my, myself and God. I get grace directly from God. It's very important for people to understand that sacramental grace does not stand in competition with the, the flow of grace that, 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 that may come between God and the individual believer in prayer. We do believe we can all approach God directly in prayer and receive grace. And we think people ought to pray all the time and receive grace that way. So, but it would be wrong to say, well, I'll do this and not that. It's kind of like saying, I'll, you know, I will have my uh, 
fruit and dairy, but not my other two. I mean, it, a balanced prayer life is, approaches grace from all the aspects, um, and, and the objective complements the subjective. We discover, I think, the more we understand the, na the nature of the, sacrament, of the sacraments, that though the life of prayer is, is rightly rooted in the objective, the commitment to be at the altar of God on Sunday. And out of that objective, the subjective flows. And, 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 and we talk more about that. But if we rely entirely on the subjective, it, it, the, the religion tends to be a little less stable. We'll talk, again, we'll talk more about how that works together afterwards. Um, the objection about intermediaries. Um, it's a misunderstanding of the nature of the church. We do need intermediaries. Don't let anyone kid you. And um, I've had evangelicals say, wow, just me and God. Well, that, they don't believe that either because they go to churches where very good preachers get up and, and, and proclaim the gospel. Well, is that not an intermediary? Of course it is. Somebody who has a gift to preach, mediating grace between you and God. Our own theology of ministry, which we think is not our theology but is, is biblical, is God gives all people in baptism in the gift of the Spirit spiritual gifts, which makes you a mediator of grace to other people. And you will understand who you are as a Christian as you understand your gifts, and you will mediate various graces to other people, words of encouragement, um, maybe some pastoral gifts, maybe some service gifts. You may have a gift of intercession. You may have a gift of just being there for people. These are all mediated graces. And so the idea that, that in the sacramental life, God has appointed sacramental people, bishops, priests, and deacons, to be conduits of grace down through the centuries in an objective line is not contrary to the idea that we pray directly to God. And in fact, not only is it contrary, we should thank God. We can come to the altar of God and there's this objective thing here. And we thank God and go away and pray at home too. We have it both, and, and, and we ought to, to look at it that way. In addition to sacraments, we have various sacramentals. That is to say, there are things we use as signs of graces that may communicate grace in, in sort of undefined ways. On Palm Sunday, on ashes, we'll put ash, on Ash Wednesday, we put ashes on our forehead as a sign of, of contrition. On Palm Sunday, we'll distribute palms. We have holy water. Um, we... Generally, the Christian tradition is supportive of signs and symbols, crosses, pictures that remind us in visible ways of things we cannot see. And, and so we have that reality. Again, all based on the principle of the incarnation. The word was made flesh. And so the objective signs of things communicate to us the invisible realities. There is some objection uh, that in some quarters that the use of a cross in worship represents idolatry or pictures or statues. I think it's possible that one's devotion to physical things as ends in and of themselves might rise to the level of idolatry, but I don't think that it's the experience of the average person who goes to church that those things are idolatrous. Rather, as we gather in church, we look at the cross, it reminds us of the death of Christ. And very few of us are, were worshiping the piece of wood that the artist put together. We'll talk more about that afterwards also. 
There's also um, a note on the sacramental perspective in things. That the focus, the sacramental focus is on the presence of God in the ordinary. Though we often experience God in extraordinary ways, and though we pray for miracles, the sacramental perspective teaches us to recognize the presence of God in ordinary things. We see Christ in ordinary water of baptism, in the bread and wine of the altar, in other Christian people, in ordinary events. And the sacramental perspective can see a very ordinary day in which seemingly ordinary things happened, but see the providence of God and the ordering of that. Whereas a less sacramental perspective will not really recognize God unless something strange happened. And I, I, and I think there needs to be a balance there. We, we recognize that God breaks into the ordinary and causes the extraordinary. But we also realize that God is always in the ordinary. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God lived the somewhat ordinary human life. Okay. There's an, there's an addendum I put to this study on apostolic ministry, which I'll briefly review. One of the sacraments I, I touched on is the sacrament of holy orders. And holy orders is, is based on the doctrine of apostolic ministry. In some sense, the apostolic ministry is the source of all sacraments. In the New Testament, Jesus chose 12 apostles. There end up being a few more than 12. Uh, Judas betrays him. Matthias is appointed. St. Paul is called an apostle. Uh, others are called an apostle. But these are people who received direct commission from Jesus. As those apostles went out in the mission field, they, they, were, they came to, be, to carry out ministry in various areas. When they died, or most of them before they died, when they realized that Jesus was not coming again, before they died, they appointed people to, 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 to carry out their ministry after they passed away. And the people they ordained or consecrated were generally came to be known as bishops. In the New Testament, you, you have these, these orders of ministry mentioned. Apostles, bishops, elders or presbyters and deacons. By the, by the second century, you, you have those fourfold ministry, that fourfold ministry reduced to bishops, priests, and deacons. And what is apparent in the reading of history is that the apostolic office came to be carried on in the bishops who were seen as successors to the apostles, carrying on their apostolic ministry. The development of, of, of what was called apostolic succession came to understand, came to be, it came to be understood that it involved two things. One was the apostle physically appointed somebody, touched as it were, who in turn, when he died, physically touched. But it wasn't just a game of tag down through the ages. The idea was that, that what was being handed on was the true deposit of faith. And actually, the earliest development of the doctrine of what was called apostolic succession was in response to heresy. In local communities, in the early church, there were wandering preachers who would come into communities and, and bring certain teachings and doctrine and say, this is the true faith. 
and it might differ a little bit from what you saw, you know, what the church was teaching. Well, how do we know who's got, who's got the genuine teaching? You knew, this is how you knew. You found the one, the bishop, who was made a bishop by someone who was made a bishop by someone who could be traced back to an apostle. He was the custodian of apostolic doctrine. He, he could tell you what was the true teaching and could separate that from the heresy of the, of the wanderer who, who might not know and teach the truth. And so we still see this as, as the twofold requirement for apostolic ministry, the, the connection, the lineal connection of bishops down through the ages, and the succession of true faith, the handing on of the faith as contained in the creeds and the scriptures in this genuine interpretation. Um, we are not Episcopalians, though we are Anglicans, because we believe the Episcopal Church has become heretical. Its bishops, though they still play the game of tag, no longer teach the faith. They have denied essential aspects of it. That's why we as Anglicans are separate or distinct from the Episcopal Church. Because we believe that genuine apostolic succession requires both the tag, as it were, but also the, the, the genuine faith. And the early church taught that if a bishop became heretical, it was the responsibility of those under his authority to separate from him. A doctrine that flows out of the doctrine of holy orders is this idea that the unworthiness of the minister does not impact the communication of grace. This is a, a doctrine developed by St. Augustine, and it's also in the Articles of Religion in the Book of Common Prayer. There was a debate in the early church between St. Augustine and, and some heretics who were called the Donatists. The Donatists held that, that ministers should be pure, and therefore uh, uh, someone who was in holy orders who had maybe denied the faith under persecution could never again be a genuine conduit of grace. The church developed the doctrine that, 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 that no, the communication of grace was a matter of, of the flow of grace from God. And so, though a minister may be unworthy, the grace still flowed through him. So therefore, while we think it's right that the church develop discipline, and if we know that somebody who's in ministry is teaching what is wrong, or misbehaving, he ought to be disciplined. Yet when we come to the altar of God, it, it's not a ministry focused on the priest. We come, the priest is a representative of Christ. He stands in for him at the altar. And the grace and the sacrament flows through him to the people. So his unworthiness, the, the grace of the sacrament does not depend upon him. And so we, we bear that in mind. And it's why sacramental religion is, is by definition less personality dependent. It's certainly nice when we like the priest, but it's not essential to receiving grace in the sacrament. Okay, briefly, and then we can discuss. What bishops, priests, and deacons do, it's also noted on page 294 of the prayer book, as I say in the notes. Bishops are the focus of the church's unity, and they are the chief pastor. 
in a sense, when we historically, since bishops confirmed the baptized and ordained deacons and priests, everyone came to their full ministry in the church at the hands of the bishop. Confirmation has a sense of lay ordination. So they're the focus of the church's ministry, being, being sort of the presence of Christ as a successor to the apostles. They ordain all ministers. In the language, we should note that priests and deacons are ordained and bishops are consecrated. And they confirm those who are baptized. Priests, and we should note the development of the priestly office that in the early church, in the first century, second century, the bishops normally presided over the Eucharist in, in, the, in the assembly, in the, in the congregation every Sunday. As the church grew, the bishops delegated that normal function of presiding at the Sunday Eucharist to the second order of ministers, the presbyters or elders who came to be known as priests, and developed into the, into the typical setup we have today where a bishop is in a remote location, a, a cathedral, or, and, and, and their local parishes presided over by priests. And so the priest normally will preach and exercise pastoral care of the congregation, although it's, it, it should be noted that one need not be ordained to preach or exercise pastoral gifts. But the primary uh, sacramental thing a priest does is to consecrate the elements at communion, consecrate the bread and wine to become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, to give blessings sacramentally and pronounce absolution. This Sunday, incidentally, Father David and I will both be out of town. Our services will be conducted by our deacons, Deacon Bob and Bart, and we'll have a liturgy of the word and communion from the reserved sacrament, bread and wine consecrated. Deacons don't consecrate, but they can administer. So it'll be consecrated a previous service and reserved, and so communion will be administered. And so this Sunday will be instructive in this point that priests consecrate the bread and wine, but deacons can administer, uh, can administer it. A priest consecrates, gives blessings, and pronounces absolution. Deacons read the gospel in the communion serve, in the liturgy. The ancient function of a deacon in the Eucharist is to read the gospel. So always, when we celebrate the Holy Communion, we have a gospel procession. The person reading the gospel will always be at least a deacon, and if a deacon is present, he, he should be the one reading it. And the deacon can administer communion in the church and take reserved sacrament to the sick. It should be noted that the modern practice by which lay people administer communion is extremely modern. It was never done in the church before about 50 years ago. Um, whether it's a good a development, one can judge, but the ancient point was that the communion was always administered by a priest, a bishop, priest, or a deacon. And we continue in that, in that ancient practice. So we, we don't have what are called lay Eucharistic ministers, which again is a very modern invention. We, talk, we can talk about that afterwards, but I just want to highlight that for you. Uh, the Orthodox Church also, the Eastern Orthodox, do not, do not have lay administration of communion either. The Eastern Orthodox Churches do not have, have that either. They practice the ancient discipline. And deacons function under the authority of the bishop.